The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, number 12 in our countdown of last year's most popular book bites, the most important, potentially life-changing books of the year, number 12 is The Hidden Spring by Mark Psalms. I'm fascinated by consciousness. What is it? Where does it come from? Can we locate it in the brain? I love getting to talk about some of those questions with the brilliant Antonio Damasio on this podcast a few months ago, one of my favorites. A couple days from now, I'll be sitting down with philosopher David Chalmers, who famously dubbed our quest to understand consciousness the, quote, hard problem. What a treat. I can't wait. And my thinking about consciousness has also been shaped by this wonderful book, The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness. Mark, who's the director of neuropsychology at the University of Cape Town, draws on both cutting-edge neuroscience and his interactions with hundreds of neurological patients to present a new theory of consciousness that might just help you better understand the inner workings of your own mind. Hi, I'm Professor Mark Solms. I'm the director of neuropsychology at the Neuroscience Institute of the University of Cape Town. My book's entitled The Hidden Spring, and it contains these five big ideas. First, I argue that the cerebral cortex is not the seat of consciousness. The evidence for this idea involves both clinical and normal phenomena. So let's start with the clinical ones. The most dramatic example is the observation that children who suffer from hydranencephaly that's kids born without a cerebral cortex, are conscious. By this, I mean that they go to sleep at night, wake up in the morning, and that they're emotionally responsive to their environments. I'll explain in a minute what I mean by that. The problem with this example is that children without cortex can't speak, because unlike consciousness, language really is a cortical function. So let's look at adult neurological patients who can speak but who've suffered extensive damage to the parts of the cerebral cortex that are traditionally claimed to generate the experiencing self. I'm referring here to the insular cortex and the prefrontal cortex. Here's the first one. Antonio Damasio reported a case with total obliteration of the insular cortex. His conversation with this patient included the following interchange, which I'm going to quote. He asks the patient, do you have a sense of self? Patient says, yes, I do. Do you think that other people can control your thoughts? Patient says, no. And why do you think that's not possible? Patient says, you control your own mind, hopefully. Demasia says, what if I were to tell you that I know you better than you know yourself? Patient says, I think you're wrong. What if I were to tell you that you're aware that I'm aware? Patient says, I'd say you're right. You're aware that I'm aware? Patient says, I'm aware that you're aware that I'm aware. Clearly, this patient is in possession of a conscious self. Similarly, I reported a case with total obliteration of the prefrontal cortex. My conversation with him included this interchange. I said, are you consciously aware of your thoughts? He said, yes, I am. 
I said, in order to confirm that, I'm going to ask you to solve a problem that will require you to consciously picture a situation in your mind. He says, okay. I say, imagine that you have two dogs and one chicken. He says, okay. I say, do you see them in your mind's eye? He says, yes. I say, now tell me how many legs do you see in total? He says, eight. So I was disappointed and I said, eight? And he replies, yep, the two dogs ate the chicken. (laughs) This little joke clearly indicates the presence of a sentient person, even of one equipped with a sense of humor. So those are my clinical examples. The normal phenomena that I mentioned include a vast amount of experimental evidence which demonstrates that we normal folks can perform most of our cortical functions without being conscious of doing so. To give just one example, using a tachistoscope, which can flash written words for just a few milliseconds so that the research participant is unaware of seeing anything, it's possible to show that the negative and positive meaning of the words that they've read without being conscious that they've done so, it influences the person's subsequent behavior. So the cortex can read with comprehension without being conscious of doing so. This example could easily be multiplied by way of other cortical functions. My conclusion is that by looking for the source of consciousness in the cerebral cortex, we've been looking in the wrong place. The second big idea in my book is that all consciousness arises from the brain stem. Proof of this claim is provided by the fact that in sharp contrast to what happens with the cortex, consciousness is reliably obliterated by an area of damage which is no larger in size than an ant in a part of the brainstem called the reticular activating system. Compare this with what happens to children born without any cerebral cortex. All they needed for consciousness was a brainstem. I told you that they're emotionally responsive. To explain what I mean, let me read a short extract from my book, describing what my colleague Bjorn Merker observed when he accompanied a group of these seriously ill children on a trip to Disney World. Here's the extract. He saw them expressing pleasure by smiling and laughter and aversion by fussing, arching their backs and crying, quote, their faces being animated by these emotional states, unquote. He observed familiar adults enlisting their responsiveness to build up play sequences, predictably progressing from smiling through giggling to laughter and great excitement on the part of the children. They responded most vigorously to the voices and actions of their parents and other people they were familiar with, and they showed preferences for certain situations over others. For example, they appeared to enjoy specific toys, tunes or videos, and they even came to expect the regular presence of such things in the course of their daily routines. Though behavior varied from child to child, some of them clearly showed initiative within the limitations of their motor disabilities. For example, by kicking noise-making trinkets hanging in a special frame constructed for the purpose, or by activating favorite toys using switches. Such behaviors were accompanied by situationally appropriate signs of pleasure or excitement on the part of the child. It's the end of the extract from the book. Now, according to the cortical theory of consciousness, these children without cortex should have been in what's called a vegetative state, 
And as you can see, they're anything but vegetative. It's true, though, that we can't know for certain what these children experience, because they can't speak. That's why, in my book, I report converging lines of evidence using multiple different experimental methods. For example, electrical stimulation of certain nuclei in the brainstem reliably elicits subjective reports of intense emotional feelings, like, for example, suicidal depression in people who've never been depressed before. fMRI and PET imaging of normal people in the grip of emotional states like joy, fear, sadness, and rage shows that the parts of the brain that are most highly activated during these states are located almost exclusively in the brainstem. Pharmacological manipulation of the neurotransmitters that are sourced in these same brainstem nuclei reliably ameliorate emotions like anxiety, mania, and depression. That's why most of the drugs that psychiatrists use today to treat emotional disorders act on these brainstem neurotransmitter systems. Most people don't know these things. My conclusion is that consciousness arises from the brainstem, that the cortical form of consciousness depends on brainstem arousal. More than that, that this basic form of consciousness, the form upon which the cognitive type of consciousness depends, is feeling. The sentient self is literally constituted by feeling. Please note here, unlike cognitions, which are mostly unconscious, feelings are necessarily conscious. Who ever heard of a feeling that you don't feel? What's the point of a feeling if you don't feel it? My third big idea is that feelings evolved like all other biological functions. Why is that a big idea? I hear you ask. Well, because David Chalmers, the philosopher who coined the celebrated hard problem of consciousness, claims that it can't be explained by the ordinary mechanistic laws that we normally use to explain bodily functions. He claims that consciousness exists somehow outside the laws of nature. He says this despite the fact that the Big Bang occurred long, long before life evolved on Earth. And all the evidence shows that life evolved long, long before brains evolved. Since consciousness is a brain function, there must have been a dawn of consciousness. And if there was such a dawn, then consciousness must have evolved from the other things that already existed before it. It must have been constituted through the physical processes that pre-existed consciousness, all of which obey natural scientific laws. The alternative view, namely that consciousness is a fundamental property of the universe, which is the view that Chalmers holds, sounds to me unhelpfully like the idea of God. The fourth big idea in my book is that feelings obey natural laws. Specifically, they obey the laws of homeostasis. Homeostasis is a very basic mechanism. It's the function by means of which all living things stay alive. In short, it keeps us within our physiologically viable bounds. What feelings do, what the elementary form of consciousness does, is tell us how well or badly we're doing in terms of this biological imperative to maintain homeostasis. Deviations away from our physically viable bounds feel bad, and returning towards them feels good. In this way, through feelings, we regulate our behavior in compliance with the value system that underpins all life, namely that it's good to survive and bad not to do so. By feeling our way through life's problems, 
we're able to make choices. Choices have to be rooted in the value system, whereby one action is better than another one. This capacity for choice bestows an enormous adaptive advantage on us. In a word, it underwrites voluntary behavior, which enables us to survive in unpredicted environments, by which I mean novel situations, and those, as you know, are far from uncommon in life. In my book, I explain how the mechanism of choice, enabled by this extended form of homeostasis called feeling, can be reduced to probabilistic mathematical equations. This is possible because, as I said, homeostasis is nothing complicated. My fifth and last big idea flows naturally from that previous one. It is that consciousness can be engineered. If my arguments are right, if they really do explain how conscious feelings came into being, then it must be possible to instantiate the equations I just mentioned in an artificial self-organizing system and thereby to render the system conscious. When the Nobel Prize-winning physicist Richard Feynman died, he left the following statement on his blackboard. What I cannot create, I do not understand. I agree with him, which is why I believe that an attempt to create an artificial consciousness is a necessary test of my theory. My book ends with a chapter in which I describe experiments that I'm currently conducting with a team of physicists and computer scientists to engineer an artificial form of consciousness. We're making a system that can feel its own states and make choices accordingly. Since I believe the successful development of this system is imminent, I also discuss in some detail in my book the ethical issues that these experiments raise. This is now clearly an area of science that's fraught with dangers, much the same way as nuclear physics is. So its use must be carefully regulated. With these five ideas, I believe my book reports substantial progress towards solving the hard problem of consciousness, or at least it makes the problem much less hard than it used to be. Thanks for listening and for reading. Thank you, Mark. That was Mark Solms, author of The Hidden Spring. If you're as fascinated by consciousness as I am, I think you'll really enjoy the conversation I had with Antonio Damasio. You can find it in this feed or you can follow the link in the episode notes. On our next episode, is email destroying the world? And if you can't wait until tomorrow to get your next book bite fix, then you should head over to the next Big Idea app. We have hundreds of book bites from the world's leading authors, and we're adding new ones every day. There is no better way to get smart fast. With book bites, you can read a book in the time it takes to paint your toenails dusty pink. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you tomorrow.